Before I dive in, I want to share some news from this weekend. Murder She Told hit number eight on the Apple Podcasts U.S. True Crime Charts in 23 out of all the podcasts on Apple. I am so grateful to the ladies at Morbid Podcast and to you for tuning in, and I'm just so filled with love and support. Thank you for being here, and if you're new here, welcome aboard. This is Murder, She Told, true crime stories from Maine, New England, and small-town USA. I'm Kristen Seavey. You can connect with me at MurderSheTold.com or on Instagram at MurderSheToldPodcast. This episode contains physical descriptions of an autopsy. If this is a trigger for you, please listen with care. Three officers from the Ashboro Police Department and an associate chief medical examiner gathered over Brandon's body in the examination room in Raleigh, North Carolina. Brandon had passed away the previous Friday evening at 8.57 p.m., three days prior. The weekend had passed. It was Monday morning around 11 a.m., and his naked body lay there before them, face up, cold, and stiff with rigor mortis. His posterior, the back of his torso and legs, were a reddish-purple color. His anterior was deathly pale and splotchy, with bits of red discoloration. They were trying to make sense of his strange death. Brandon was an otherwise healthy 33-year-old man who was taken to the hospital on Thursday, beaten and unconscious, and passed away 30 hours later. And he never awakened to tell the truth of what had happened to him. All that was left was to make sense of the clues that were left for the living. Brandon's injuries were numerous. I'll go slow and I'll begin with his head. The answers in this case may lie here. When Brandon was brought to the ER, the most obvious evidence of injury was the blood encrusting his face. The blood had dripped down either side of his face and his forehead and it dried, becoming solid and cracked. His naked body was found in his bedroom, his head lying in a small pool of blood that looked like it was diluted by a leak from the toilet. The wound to his face at his eyebrow was Y-shaped and fairly deep, the sort of cut you would get stitched up. Other than this cut, there were other smaller cuts to the bridge of his nose and to the right eyebrow. His forehead had many small scratches. His lips were bruised and the fleshy bit inside your mouth that connects your upper lip to the gums above your front teeth was either cut or torn. Beneath his chin was another cut, but other than the blood on his face, the next most obvious head injury, or evidence thereof, was the discoloration around his eyes. Similar to a black eye, periorbital ecchymosis, also known as raccoon eyes, is where your eyes have red, purple, or black discoloration around their sockets. Both of Brandon's eyes had this condition. Oddly, this is not evidence of a direct injury to the eyes, but is often a sign of other trouble, most commonly a fracture to the skull. His head had several bruises and swelling, the largest of which was on the right side above his ear. Next was the damage to Brandon's torso. His back and sides had a number of scratches, not too deep, and no more than an inch or two long. 
the kind of scratches fingernails might make. The top of his right shoulder had a scratch, about one and a half inch long and in a precise semicircular shape. In the words of the detective on the case, Brandon had contusions on his back, which were consistent with being struck with a hard object, such as a metal rod or baseball bat. His flanks had quite a bit of bruising. And lastly, his left lung was bruised, as discovered by the autopsy, in the bottom left lobe, which had a corresponding bruise on his back. Moving on to his arms, the back of his left arm had several deep scratches side by side, at least eight inches long. These would have definitely bled. His left wrist had a small puncture wound. There was surface skin torn away from the inside of his left thumb. The inside of his right wrist had a jagged cut with a ragged edge, about three quarters of an inch long, which is again the type of wound that you'd likely want to get stitched up. The right palm had a large diagonal cut on it, about three quarters of an inch long. Wounds that some might classify as defensive. Moving on to his pelvic region, Brandon's penis had two small bruises on it, and his butt had a five-inch-long diagonal scratch. Both of his legs had extensive bruising to the knees and to the shin. His left knee had at least 20 small scratches and scrapes. His right knee had about 10. The inside of both his left and right ankles had bad bruising, and the top of his left foot had bruising across the top knuckles of the toes. The top of his second toe on his left foot had two small, perfectly round puncture wounds. The bottom of his left foot had a three-quarter inch cut right around the arch. The top of his right foot had several small wounds, and the big toe had a chunk of skin missing at its tip. Brandon's injuries were literally head to toe. Hospital staff in Ashboro commented to the family that they thought that he looked like someone who had been hit by a car. He arrived in the ER with blood smeared across his face and damage to every region of his body. Several medical staff members told detectives that the wounds could not have been self-inflicted, which challenged some of their initial impressions about what had happened. The police believed that Brandon had a break from reality and went on a drug-fueled rage that destroyed his apartment and reduced him to an unconscious puddle on the floor. Because of the sheet that had been draped over Brandon's body, many of the wounds had been concealed to the detectives. They had their reasons, and though they're not all spelled out explicitly in the police reports, I can imagine how they stereotyped Brandon as an illicit drug user. They discovered hypodermic needles on the floor near his body in an unopened package, and several individual needles lying on his bedroom floor. They found a psychedelic-looking bag of green powder, labeled Kratom, from a smoke shop in Seattle called Anarchy Smoke, which they may have mistaken for a recreational drug. Brandon's body was covered with tattoos, some of which had a demonic bent, like the large 5x5 five five horned face, colored with yellow, orange, and red on his right chest. A menagerie of sex toys, including restraints, were found near his naked body. He had just lost his job the prior Friday, and his mom was calling in a wellness check to make sure that he hadn't done something rash. They somehow got the impression that Brandon had a clinical history of depression and anabolic steroid abuse. The toilet was dislodged from the wall and the floor, presumably by someone powerful like Brandon. The sliding closet doors in his bedroom had been pulled off their track, 
In Brandon's wallet, laptop, and cell phone were all discovered in the apartment, along with his safe under his bed, suggesting that robbery was not a motive. Furthermore, the front and back doors to his apartment were locked. There was no sign of forced entry. Their belief was that Brandon ransacked the apartment while experiencing a psychotic episode, but the medical evidence challenged their assumptions, so they ramped up their efforts to conduct a more thorough search of the crime scene. There were four search warrants that police petitioned for and were granted. The first one was signed off by a judge just hours after Brandon was transported to the hospital, and it was for his apartment. The evidence gathered in connection to Ashboro PD's first warrant included some cotton swabs of presumed bodily fluids from the home, a pair of steel handcuffs, Brandon's black iPhone X, hair from the bedroom wall, and what police described as suspected drug paraphernalia. The second warrant was issued the next morning, the day of Brandon's death at the hospital, and it was for his truck, which was parked in front of his apartment. Police discovered that its doors were unlocked and they retrieved no evidence from the truck. The third search warrant was issued on that same afternoon and the target was again Brandon's apartment. This was the most extensive search that the police conducted. They went through his apartment more thoroughly and they, in particular, were searching for weapons that could have been used to cause injuries to Brandon's body. They ended up retrieving a bent shower curtain rod a small sledgehammer, the keys to the handcuffs they took previously, a metal clipboard which was bent and damaged, a metal pipe which I believe may have been from the closet organizer box, some bloody paper, and a firearm suppressor. In support of each search warrant, the police officer applying for it will provide a supporting narrative, and you can get a sense for what their frame of mind is at this point of the investigation from what they wrote. The first one betrays some confusion about what had happened, but specifically notes that Brandon had, quote, lost his job two days ago and was not heard from again, which implies to me that they were entertaining the possibility of suicide. The second search warrant started to express some more doubt about their initial conclusion and said that they were unable to find his wallet and keys. If this were a suicide, what would explain them being missing? And then on the third warrant, feedback from the medical staff at the hospital had caused a major shift in tone. They had, to this point, never put in writing their belief that Brandon's injuries were self-inflicted, but they acknowledged that they were changing their mind, implicitly admitting their initial belief. In the supporting affidavit, the detective described his injuries as consistent with being struck with a metal rod or baseball bat and they learned that the injuries were life-threatening. They described some of the injuries and characterized them as defensive wounds. They then closed the search warrant with their fervent hope that the person or people, quote, responsible for Mr. Embry's injuries be identified and brought to justice. Further dispelling the notion of suicide or an illegal drug-induced psychosis, was the fact that the preliminary talk screen conducted while Brandon was admitted to the hospital found no evidence of illegal recreational drugs. The mood of the police would change again when they got the results from the autopsy. Its conclusion? Brandon had died of natural causes. 
the medical examiner, Dr. Lauren Scott, conferred with police to understand the circumstances surrounding Brandon's death. So in addition to medical records from his hospital admission and things that she could learn from the study of his body, she also had access to all the information the police had gleaned to that point. She concluded that Brandon's cause of death was pneumonia. Pneumonia, in the broadest sense, is simply inflammation in the lungs, and though most otherwise healthy adults don't fear it, it can be deadly. Pneumonia is usually created by bacteria or viruses, or a combination of both. It often begins as an infection in your throat or sinuses, and then moves down into the lungs. Brandon's lungs were carefully examined as part of the autopsy, and though she found consolidation throughout the lungs, it was particularly present in the right lower, the right middle, and the left lower lobes. Consolidation is a medical term that means that normally compressible lung tissue was firm and fluid-filled from inflammation. In other words, the lung tissue in those areas wouldn't be able to absorb oxygen. So in turn, the brain and the heart were starved. She said that the pneumonia could cause the multi-organ failure and sepsis that the hospital had diagnosed. And based upon the chest imaging that was done when Brandon arrived, she believed that pneumonia was present prior to admission. She noted that the kidneys were failing, literally falling apart, and there was evidence of moderate liver disease. Regarding the rest of the injuries on his body, she admits that she doesn't know what precipitated them. She concluded that they were, quote, not contributory to death, and thus she classified the manner of death as natural. Meanwhile, Brandon's family was beginning the solemn task of cleaning out his apartment. They first tried to find Brandon's key, and though they found five or six keys around the apartment, none of them would lock the front door. They also discovered a lot of blood splatter, not just in the bedroom and bathroom, but in other parts of the apartment as well. They started taking photos of their own, and they set aside bloody items. For example, the comforter and the pillow from his bed, which were both soaked and had plenty of evidence of blood. They also found streaking in some of the blood, suggesting that perhaps some cleanup had been performed. It seemed impossible that someone in a psychotic rage ransacking their apartment would also have the presence of mind to grab a spray bottle and do some cleanup. They called the lead Ashboro detective, Jeremy Suddeth, back to the scene and reviewed their findings with him. He agreed, at the time, that it looked like some cleanup had been done. But while the police were there, they suggested that meth often induces psychosis. On September 25th, Detective Suddeth returned to the apartment to do more testing and searching using a blood detection chemical called Blue Star. He tested the second bathroom with Blue Star and found no evidence of blood. He also tested a dead blow hammer that Sarah's family had suggested and found no evidence of blood. The bathroom connected to Brandon's bedroom, though, was tested and did have a number of spots that indicated presence of blood. The investigation continued through the fall, and they pieced together details about the end of Brandon's life. Brandon's final purchases were discovered through a review of his financial records. On Sunday, September 8th, at 10.26 p.m., four days before first responders discovered him, he ordered pizza from Domino's. The total was $36.83, and he signed for it. The receipt was recovered. 
His mother, Sarah, believes that the signature is his handwriting. The empty boxes were found in his bedroom. On Tuesday, September 10th, there was an in-store purchase at an adult store called Adam and Eve in Greensboro, the nearest major city about 30 minutes north of Ashboro. The staff there was questioned, and they recognized Brandon as someone who had been in the store before, but they couldn't be sure if he was there on that particular day. The product that was purchased was not in any of the photos from the crime scene. Another purchase, likely made on September 10th, was at a Chinese restaurant in Ashboro called Jade Express, a little counter service spot in Randolph Mall. The total spend was $17.28. And since the average entree costs between $6 and $10, this was likely two entrees, though we don't have a receipt to confirm. On Monday, September 9th, there were text messages from Brandon's phone to his mom's, where, at 4.21 p.m., he complained of being sick and in bed all day, and that he was suffering from a terrible headache. And on Tuesday, September 10th, at 6.30 a.m., Sarah got the final texts from her son two days before he was discovered unconscious. The final phone call from Brandon's phone was on Tuesday evening at 8.26 p.m. with a Virginia woman that Brandon was dating. On Wednesday, there were calls placed to Brandon's phone that weren't answered, and a neighbor of his recalled that FedEx tried to deliver a package that afternoon, but nobody answered the door. They spoke to a property maintenance man, and he remembered that Brandon had asked him to come by and repair some damage to the ceiling in the bedroom. When the maintenance man arrived, he said that Brandon would have to clean up his place before he'd be willing to do the work. He said that there was trash, clothes, and personal items everywhere. The only other fruitful lead that was tracked down is the information from his final employer about firing Brandon for the condition of his hotel room. At the beginning of January 2020, the Ashboro Police Department promoted Jeremy Suddeth to sergeant and reassigned Brandon's case to Detective Lori Johnson. She had been involved with Brandon's case from the beginning, but now she would be taking over the lead on the investigation. Detective Johnson had mentioned to Sarah on a few occasions her theory that Brandon had taken some drugs which precipitated his injuries, and on February 7, 2020, the medical examiner issued an amendment to her autopsy report, changing the manner of death from natural to undetermined. Sarah believes that the reason for this change in classification is because of the theory that Johnson proffered to the medical examiner about Brandon having taken some illicit drugs, which were metabolized by his body before being admitted to the hospital, which resulted in them not appearing on the talk screen. This is almost verbatim what the medical examiner wrote. Upon further investigation of the case, it was suggested that Brandon's organ damage may have been caused by a substance ingestion on September 10th that had been metabolized by September 12th. Further, she wrote, substance ingestion may have been the cause of death, and this cannot be proven or disproven by the autopsy findings. On February 27th, 2020, after five months of investigation, Detective Johnson closed Brandon's case. The reasons were straightforward and clear. The apartment was secured, and there was no signs of forced entry. Though the mess of his apartment was extreme and bizarre, it was consistent with the account of the maintenance worker and the company who fired him. There were valuables left in the apartment, including cash in Brandon's wallet and numerous electronics 
which ruled out robbery as a motive. The autopsy results indicated that Brandon had died of natural causes. They had done an investigation and had found nothing that pointed to foul play. As far as they could tell, Brandon was down and out about being fired, may have ingested something, and all of the damage to his body was self-inflicted. Sarah was furious. It made no sense to her that her healthy 33-year-old son had died due to pneumonia or drugs. He was adamantly opposed to recreational drug use and was very careful about what he put in his body. He never hesitated to go to the doctor if something was wrong. In fact, she said that he was, at times, too eager to go. She remembered a time when he had a small cut on his hand, and his sister-in-law, who works in the medical field, told him it was too minor to get stitched, but he insisted to go to the ER. They told him the same thing. He had an ongoing, perhaps too frequent relationship with medical professionals. If he were feeling ill, he would have had no hesitation to seek treatment. She remembered the day they brought her into the police department to tell her the news. Detective Johnson called me and she asked me if I could come in. She needed me to come in that day for some reason. You know, I had contacted the private investigator and he told me they were probably closing the case. And then they tell me there's just nothing there. There's nothing there that shows any foul play. It was like, what about this high level of Benadryl in his system? You know, he's laid there for days and he has a, still has a high level of Benadryl. They said, you know, a whole bottle of Benadryl wouldn't do anything to someone. And that was it. They closed the case. And, you know, I, I will have to say I was mad. I was mad about that. But while the police were conducting their investigation, Sarah was conducting her own. And at the center of it, a woman named Cassandra. Remember how in part one I mentioned that Brandon had a long-term relationship in Washington State before moving to North Carolina? Well, he missed companionship a lot, and he was eager to find a partner in North Carolina. After a brief, failed relationship that moved too quickly and fizzled out fast, he started dating online, using apps like Tinder, Hinge, and Badoo. And through one of those apps, he met Cassandra. The timeline of their activity in 2019 isn't totally clear, but Brandon did tell his sister about her in February, and she was present in his life until his death in September. Sarah came to know Cassandra through her daughter-in-law. It was five days after Brandon had passed away on September 18th, and Brandon's sister-in-law got a Facebook message. Cassandra introduced herself, and this is what she wrote. Hey, I know you don't know me at all, but you're Brandon Wesley Embry's sister, and I was your brother's girlfriend from mid-May until his passing. I met him on a dating app called Hinge. He sent me a text with a crying emoji on Tuesday the 10th, and I haven't heard from him since, and I've been a worried mess since then. He never told me your mom's name, but that he had a sister that was in Kentucky. I found out the hard way yesterday when I went by his apartment at Park Place in Ashboro on South Church Street yesterday evening and some woman told me that he died. I hope you know how wonderful of a man he was, and that I thought the world of him. It was a long message that continued by asking if she could have one of Brandon's sweatshirts to remember him by. She also asked for some things of hers that were left at Brandon's apartment, some clothes and makeup to be returned. It seemed innocuous enough, so she forwarded it to Sarah, 
who immediately reached out to Cassandra directly. And after a one-week delay in communication, what ensued was 10 months of sometimes daily contact between Cassandra and Sarah, which gradually revealed a strange and ominous portrait of Cassandra and her mysterious relationship with Brandon. She offered to meet. She came up and we met in Asheboro. She was strange as far as her her behavior. When I first met her, she was literally shaking. I mean, just visibly shaking. And then when we went inside, she was just staring at me. And it it was very strange at the time. Like I had never been like stared at that intently before. She made a couple of comments that I felt they just didn't sit right. It, it wasn't anything incriminating, but she talked about a blender that her and Brandon bought. They ended up not having to pay for it. And she said, we got away with murder. And to me, that was just so unsettling, the way that she said it. And there was almost this just gleam in her eye. When she said that, I just really felt like somehow she was involved. And from that point on, I kept in touch with her. Cassandra came on strong. She said that she and Brandon were soulmates and wildly in love. They were going to get married. Sarah was stunned to find a photo of a wedding ring from Zales on her phone, with a comment, Brandon has great taste in jewelry. She said that she had been pregnant with his child and had miscarried. She even sent her pictures of an ultrasound. She told Sarah how many children that she and Brandon were planning to have. She called him pet names and shared intimate details of their relationship. She explained that they were getting ready to open a joint bank account together and that she should be entitled to the money that was in his account. I think if he had been serious about anyone, that he definitely would have talked to me. if He never mentioned her to me and he never mentioned her name. At one point, he told his sister that he was dating a girl from Russia. So that would be Cassandra, but he didn't think it was going to work out because she was going back to Russia. So the only real proof that I have are those few times that she was mentioned. So the rest comes from her. And she said that they would spend almost every weekend together, but I don't know how often they were actually together because I don't have any text messages or phone records where I could really verify anything that she said. Sarah didn't even know Cassandra's name until she appeared in the wake of Brandon's death. The notion that they were in a head-over-heels relationship was simply outrageous. Sarah would primarily communicate with Cassandra through Facebook Messenger, but she would also have phone calls, face-to-face -face meetings, and text conversations. Altogether, Sarah met up with her in person four times. Over the time that Sarah maintained a relationship with Cassandra, she would also feed information to the detectives about what she was learning. What I didn't mention before is that detectives were aware of Cassandra because they discovered Brandon's correspondence with her through his AT&T phone records. They revealed to Sarah that although Brandon corresponded with Cassandra, he spoke to the Virginia woman I mentioned previously five times as much, further casting doubt on the seriousness of their relationship. They had already spoken to Cassandra on the phone. And though that portion of the police report is redacted, she established her alibi for the week of Brandon's death that she was home in bed. As the conversations with Sarah became more strange, detectives took a closer look at Cassandra. 
In late November, Detective Suddeth asked her to come into the Ashboro Police Department for further questioning. She was panicked, and who better to vent to than to her new friend, the mother of her dead boyfriend. Cassandra had a tearful 20-minute phone call where she expressed her fears about going in and talking to Suddeth about her and Brandon's relationship. She ended up telling the detective she was sick and couldn't come in. He followed up and convinced her to come in later, on December 4th. Detective Suddeth questioned her for two hours. She said that she'd been to Ashboro a total of three or four times. She said that she was last in town on Brandon's birthday, which was Saturday, September 7th, five days before he was found, and that she returned to his apartment about a week after his death to check on him, which is where she learned of his death. And while I don't know all the details of their discussion, I do know that following her interview, Suddeth asked if he could perform a phone dump on her cell phone, law enforcement jargon that means to extract all the data from her phone. She consented, and he had her follow him to the sheriff's office where they had the equipment to do it. He briefly left her in the interview room, and while he was out of the room, he saw that she was working quickly on her phone. While they were on their way to the sheriff's office, he saw her in his rearview mirror, frantically doing something with her phone. They hooked her phone up to the machine, and the procedure was a success. But the forensic tech revealed to Suddeth that nothing had been recovered. No GPS data, no text messages. She had even shown him texts on her phone between Brandon and her during their interview, and those were missing. It appeared that she had performed a factory reset of her phone. The next day, Suddeth sent an order to Verizon to preserve her cell phone records. And a week later, on December 20th, he sent Verizon a search warrant to produce her phone records for some critical periods of time, with which they complied. The police have not released those records. Immediately following the interview, Cassandra called Sarah. She was giddy, laughing uncontrollably. She said that after it was over, she thought, is that it? And laughed at them. What became clear to Sarah almost immediately was that Cassandra was a liar. She told Brandon that she was from Russia. Brandon even told his sister that he didn't think it was going to work out with her because he believed she'd be returning to Russia. Cassandra is from Farmingdale, Maine, along with her entire family. Cassandra claimed to have multiple sclerosis, an eating disorder, and obsessive compulsive disorder. She said that she had lifelong stomach issues. None of this is true. Brandon didn't have a girlfriend, much less a soon-to-be life partner. It was all of her own invention. She said that she had a master's degree in nursing. She doesn't. She said that she had a twin sister who died. She does have a sister, but not a twin, and she's alive and well. In other phone calls with Sarah, she referred to having a brother. She has no brother. She told Sarah that when she was 14 years old, she had a baby, but the baby got tangled up in blankets and died. She said that when she went to Brandon's apartment to check on him, she knocked on a neighbor's door, learned the news of his death, and nearly passed out, crying and wailing and begging for comfort. Sarah checked. She found the neighbor and asked for her account of the interaction. Cassandra got the news, said thank you, and shook her hand. I would talk to her on the phone through Facebook audio, sometimes quick conversations, and sometimes the conversations were over an hour. Sometimes she would ramble, and 
you know, just tell me these elaborate far-fetched stories about being from Russia and living in colonies, her father being in the Russian mafia and being in prison, just things that I knew were, you know, not true. But what I learned over time is that she was giving me shreds of truth wrapped in this pathological lying. So it was always trying to figure out, okay, what is the truth of what she has just said and what is just a lie. But most shocking of all, Cassandra was married and lived with her husband in South Carolina the entire time that she knew Brandon. Danny lives in Darlington, South Carolina, a two-hour drive south of Ashboro. Danny is 20 years Cassandra's senior. They were married in 2012, when Danny was 42 and Cassandra was 22. Though he knew of her family when she was only a child, it wasn't until November of 2011 that he met her again as an adult. She was living in a nearby town called Hartsville, and that same month they met, she showed up at his place and never left. Three months later, in February of 2012, they were legally married. She kept it a secret from her family, and it wasn't until December of 2013, on a trip to Maine to visit Cassandra's family, that she coached him to propose in front of her family. He played along with the ruse. He said that the first couple years of marriage were good, but that things started to change. By the time 2019 rolled around, things were strange. She and Danny had separate bedrooms, and she would disappear for periods of time as short as a night away or as long as a month or two. She would claim to be in Colorado or Virginia or Ohio or Maine, but he was never sure where. She maintained P.O. boxes in Virginia and Colorado. She had a number of burner phones. She would pick up new prepaid phones all the time. He financially supported her and even set up a checking account that he deposited money into. She had odd jobs, but largely didn't work. A couple of her employers were IHOP and La Quinta Inn. But Danny suspected that she made some cash through sex work on sugar daddy-oriented dating apps. They are still legally married, and he's trying to get a divorce. They're currently going through a mandatory one-year separation. How do we know all of this? Because Danny has been fully cooperative with Sarah's investigation into her son's death and has provided to Sarah much of the information that she's learned about Cassandra, even sharing burner phones and text messages. In addition to Danny, Sarah has also reached out to an ex-boyfriend of Cassandra's, who we'll call Kevin. Kevin is a lobsterman on the main coast, and he had a three-year-long relationship with Cassandra prior to her marriage with Danny. He, too, has been fully cooperative with Sarah's investigation. And boy, do they have stories to tell. Next time on Murder, She Told in the conclusion of Brandon Embry's story. These two people were both getting sick. That was definitely a red flag. So then when I talk to her husband, I find out that the symptoms that he had were very similar to the symptoms that Brandon had when he ended up in the ICU. He actually said, you know, as a human being, you just get that feeling when you know you're dying. And he said at one point when he went to the hospital, he knew he was dying. I want to thank you so much for listening. I'm so grateful that you chose to tune in and I couldn't be here without you. If you want to support and contribute to the show, there's a link in the show notes with options. 
leaving a nice review or telling a friend is a great way to support too. You can connect with me on Facebook or Instagram at Murder She Told Podcast. Special thanks to Sarah Lee for her generous amounts of time and sharing her memories with me. A detailed list of sources can be found on the blog at MurderSheTold.com linked in the show notes. Thank you to Byron Willis for his research and writing support. If you would like to make a suggestion for a future episode or a correction, feel free to reach out to me at hello at MurderSheTold.com. My only hope is that I've honored your stories and keeping the names of your family and friends alive. I'm Kristen Seavey, and this is Murder She Told. Thank you for listening. Thank you.